Good morning. Good to be back. I was here sometime last year. I can't remember when, but I was here sometime last year. But it's really good to be back. I was not supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be on a plane today to India before all this happened. And uh, But uh, with all that has happened, flights are shut down and travel has been disbanded. So it's been, a, uh, it's been an interesting season that we live in right now. We're just waiting to see what the Lord is going to do. Uh, during a season like this, you know, we often start to wonder, you know, what's happening in the scope. I was thinking about it today. This has been going on for four months. It, 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 for some people, it feels like four years or 40 years. It feels like children of Israel in the desert for 40 years. You know, how are we, when's this thing going to end? When are we going to get over it? And it is interesting when we look back at history that these kind of moments, you know, four months, uh, in the scope of, can you imagine being in the des desert for 40 years? Uh, you know, that sometimes we, we, we overblow what's happening and think that our challenges are much more than they actually are. In India, the challenges have been uh, quite significant. In uh, March, the government announced, the prime minister announced, this was at 9 o'clock at night, he said at 5 o'clock tomorrow morning, lockdown starts. And when he said lockdown starts, you have to have an app to be able to leave your house. You can leave for one hour just in the mornings to go get groceries. And the app will show that you went to the grocery store and back. If not, you get arrested and put in prison. You can go to the grocery store. You can go to the pharmacy. And uh, if you're under 10 or un over 60, you are not allowed to leave the house, period. We have people that have literally for four months now been locked down in their house. They can't even leave the house. People have to go get groceries for them and bring the groceries for them. I mean, it's a difficult time. And during this moment, we started praying, God, what is our response during this time? How, do we, how are we going to respond during this moment? We started back when, it, back when this whole thing began. We started weekly calls with India where we're on Zoom calls together. We're praying together. We're encouraging them. And, and so I started praying and asking the Lord, how, how do we respond to this moment? And I really believe as I was praying about this, the Lord gave me a word, and I don't believe it was just for India. I believe it was for, for you also. It's for the church in America. It's for the people of God. Of How are we going to respond during difficult times? I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 4. This is uh, Jesus beginning his public ministry. He has just come out of the wilderness. He's walking into the synagogue they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. He picks up that scroll and turns to this place, Luke chapter 4 and verse 18, where, where the prophet Isaiah writes this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free, verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when I read that, it just struck me. This is the year of the Lord's favor. I believe it with all of my heart. This is not the year of COVID-19. This is not the year of economic downturn. This is not the year of division for our country. If we, the people of God, will seek the face of God, in the scope of history, we will be able to look back and say, that was the year of the Lord's favor. That was the year that families were restored and, and children returned to God and, and our cities were transformed. If we as a people 
will focus on God in this moment. This can be the year of the Lord's favor. Now, some of you are looking at me and say, here we go again. Somebody trying to convince us that everything's going to be all right, that it's not as bad as I think it is. And I want you to know that was exactly the response Jesus would have gotten that day. So here's Jesus. He's reading this, and he says to them, this is the year of the Lord's favor. And I'm sure across the whole synagogue there were eye rolls that day. Here we go again. Somebody else telling us that God's going to do something for us. You see, you got to remember what was happening that day. you got to remember the history of those people sitting there that day. It had been 900 years since Israel had seen a miracle. 900 years. There was a time that miracles were almost normal for the Jewish people. In the time of Moses, you'd come up to a sea and the sea would part. You'd come up to a rock and water would come out of a rock. There, Every day there was manna. You know, you were fed from heaven every day. Every once in a while, quails would come in and you get some meat to eat also. That there were walls falling down and rivers parting. I mean, it was almost a normative thing for a while that miracles just happened in Israel. And then you get to the, the end of the line, these power prophets. You have Elijah, the prophet, who, who did all of these miraculous works. And then as Elijah is taken up into heaven, Elisha, the prophet, takes the mantle. He takes that anointing on himself. And Elisha goes out and does incredible things in the name of the Lord. And then you get to the very last miracle recorded in the Old Testament. Elisha, the prophet, is now dead. He is in the tomb. Raiders from another country come in. One of them is killed. They throw the body of this raider into the tomb of Elisha, and it says that when he touched the bones of Elisha, this man comes back to life. Man, how many of you would like to have miracles like that happening in the church again? But I believe the moral of the story is this. The moral of the story is when, when Moses died, Joshua took up the anointing. When Elijah was taken off, Elisha took up in the anointing. When Elisha died, there was no one to walk in the anointing. And the only place to find the power of God was in the graveyard. The only place to find God's power was to go back to a graveyard and remember people who used to walk in the power of God. So it actually isn't a great miracle. It was a depressing miracle that when Elisha died, the anointing went with him. And actually, the power of God is not revealed in the Bible again until Jesus Christ walks on this earth and begins to walk in that same power, in that same anointing, and say, the Spirit of the Lord is now on me because he has anointed me. And Jesus then begins to walk in the anointing again. But it had been 900 years, and they haven't seen a miracle yet. It had been 600 years since the Jewish people knew any kind of political freedom. The Assyrian army had come in and they had destroyed Israel and taken Israel captive. After that, the Babylonians came in and they destroyed Judea. They take Jerusalem captive. After that, the Persians take over and they rule. After that, the Greek Empire rules. They defile the temple. After that, now the Romans have come in and the Romans have started their reign of terror. It had been over 600 years since any Jewish person had known any kind of political freedom. It had been 400 years 
since Israel heard the word of the Lord. The last of the prophets, Malachi, who came and said, Thus saith the Lord. It had been 400 years. So you can imagine why the people sitting in the synagogue that day would have been a little bit skeptical. Why they would have said today, this, this all sounds good, but we've read this before. We've heard this before. What's different about this time? It would have been easy to be skeptical. But for us, with the scope of history, we can look back and we can say, man, that was absolutely the year of the Lord's favor. Because something started that day as Jesus revealed himself that 2,000 years later, on every continent today, Jesus Christ is being worshipped. That there are over 2 billion people around the world today who proclaim allegiance to Jesus Christ. That the name of Jesus has been known by more people than any name in the history of the world. The most impactful person in the history of the world. And looking back, we can absolutely say, yes, that was the year of the Lord's favor. And I believe the same thing can happen now. I believe it can happen now that if we, the people of God, will seek his face, you may not see it today or tomorrow, but it's going to come. Now, let me be very clear. Favor doesn't mean easy. Favor doesn't mean your economic situation is going to turn around. Favor doesn't mean pain-free. Jesus proclaimed this is the year of the Lord's favor, and that led to three years of being hungry, of being tired, thirsty, exhausted, betrayed, murdered, buried. Favor doesn't mean that life turns easy for you. Favor means that God begins to use me and you to bring transformation to people around us and to the world around us, that God wants to pour out his spirit in us to use us to transform our world. Favor is not about your economics. It's really not. And I can tell you, I feel like I'm walking in the year of the Lord's favor, and uh, my car blew its engine last week. So favor doesn't mean life gets easy. My sciatic nerve is killing me today. <laughs> favor doesn't mean pain-free. But why would I expect pain-free looking at the life of Jesus? Why would I read the Bible and expect that if I follow God, my life's going to be easy? We have to determine what kind of people do we want to be? Is the goal of life my luxury, my comfort, my convenience, or is the goal of life to be transformative, to see God use us to bring hope and life and healing to others? We have to determine what the goal of our life is going to be. And if that is our goal, how are we going to get there? I want to tell you, God specializes in difficult situations. God specializes in showing up when we're in the fire. God specializes in showing up when we as people are on a boat and the storm is coming and it feels like we're going to sink. God specializes in showing up three days after we die. He specializes in showing up in difficult moments and showing his power. So if we're going to be the kind of people who walk in this anointing, who walk in this power, what do we have to do? We're going to look today, Isaiah chapter 58. Now, remember this, that 
chapters and verses, the numbers, were added to the Bible to help us to be able to find stuff better, to help us to be able to study. Because if I just said to you today, turn to Isaiah where it says the Spirit of the Lord is on me, then it would take most of us an hour to look through Isaiah and find that portion. But because we have Isaiah 58 and these numbers, it helps us to find. But the challenge is sometimes that the numbers separate thoughts that were meant to be together. Does that make sense? So the Bible was written just as a letter, not with numbers. It was just written as a, a letter to people, a letter to us. And so in Isaiah 61, where we have this passage Jesus was reading from, it seems like it's separated from the other passages come before, but it's not. It's a train of thought that flows through Scripture. Isaiah chapter 58, and listen to how similar this is to the passage we just read. Isaiah 58 Verses 6 and 7. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke. You remember what the anointing does? It is the anointing that does these things. And so how do we fast in the way that God has called us to so that God will pour out his spirit on us. There is a connection between fasting, seeking the face of God, and then God pouring out his spirit on us. And so where is it and how do we do this fast? Verse 7, is it not to share, everybody say share, to share your food with the hungry and to provide, everybody say provide, Provide the poor wanderer with shelter, and when you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. So you notice that fasting is not the passive thing that we've made it out to be. Fasting for us is a passive activity of sitting at home and separating ourselves, whereas the fasting that God has called us to is to interact with those in need. Does that make sense? So it's not just when I fast, I don't eat. It is when I fast, I don't eat, and I share the food I would have eaten with somebody who needs to eat today. Fasting is not just I determine for a season I'm not going to buy new stuff for myself, but fasting is I'm going to take what I would have bought and I'm going to buy it for somebody else. Fasting means that we interact, that we emotionally join ourselves with the broken. So we ask the Lord, Lord, help me to understand what it feels like to be in lack. God, help me to feel what it feels to be hungry. Help me to emotionally attach myself with broken people so that I can better intercede and be a minister to those who are broken. It is entering into brokenness. In India, when this uh, whole pandemic started, it, it created very unique challenges for us in India. We have now over 7,000 churches across India. Over a million people attend those churches. But when this pandemic started, in the middle of March, every church was closed down. There, there are no gyms, there are no restaurants, and if, there are no churches that are open across India today. And the difficulty is that for many of those churches, they don't have internet. They, they're not able to do Facebook Live. They're not able to put their services up on YouTube. They don't have PayPal so that people can continue to, to pay and to make sure they're taken care of. Our pastors in India, the most of them, they live Sunday to Sunday. 
On Sunday, believers show up at church. Some of them bring a bag of rice. Some of them bring some vegetable. Some of them bring some beans and lentils. Some of them give a little money, and the pastor then is able to feed his wife and his children and to be able to send them to school for the week, and then they come back the next Sunday, and they do it all again. And when this pandemic hit, it has been four months since churches have been open. And we started getting reports. There are pastors that are literally starving to death. Their families have not eaten. How do we respond to this? And we called our community to fast. We called them to say, listen, we have brothers and sisters who are dying, and they need us today, and I want you to fast with me. And here's how we're going to fast. We're going to go without food for a number of days. We're going to take the food we would have eaten. We're going to send that food to them. We're going to find ways to get them the food. We're going to find ways to get them the money we would have spent. We are going to, to use this time to share, to provide. We're going to enter into their pain, not only emotionally, but physically to do something about it. And I can tell you this, that in a season of fasting, our community, it, it began to change a heart that these weren't distant people who are hungry. This is our brothers and sisters who are hungry. We've got to do it. When you fast, you enter in emotionally and spiritually with those who are broken and something happens inside of us to change us to be a people who not only empathize, but people who get involved and do something about it. And they began to provide. And I can tell you today that we have not one pastor, not one pastor's child, not one pastor's wife who is hungry today. They have been provided for. I got a report just uh, last Sunday, 1,182 pastor's families have been provided for for the last four months. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> and it started with a time of fasting. It started with entering in with them. Listen to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 3. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Man, that's, that's heavy, isn't it? Do you realize this? If your son or daughter, if your brother or sister, if your mother or father were in prison, they would be visited. Amen? Because you'd visit them. Is that right? If your mother and father, your brothers, if your children were in the hospital, they would not be forgotten. They would be cared for. Why? Because you're family. The Bible tells us that during a time of fasting, we are to not turn away from our own flesh and blood. So the real issue becomes, who is my brother? Who's my sister? Who's my family? Who am I responsible for? You know, this question started back when sin started. You know, the original sin, after Adam and Eve sinned, it separated them from God. It, it caused a, a separation between them and God because God is holy and they were sinful and they were separated from God. That was the immediate impact of sin is that people were separated from God. The secondary impact of sin, as soon as they were separated from God, they were also separated from one another. 
And so Cain and Abel get in a fight, and Cain kills Abel, and God comes to Abel just to see the heart of Cain, not to, not to, not to know what happened. God knew what happened. How many of you know God knows what happens? But God still asks, just to see what's in our heart. And he asked Cain, where's Abel? And how did Cain respond? Am I my brother's keeper? I'm not responsible for him. He's responsible for himself. I may be responsible for my wife and children, but man, he, he's got his own life. He's a grown-up. He's an adult. Let him take care of himself. I'm not responsible for him. Who is my brother? Who is my sister? Who am I responsible for? You see, the fact is this. In Scripture, every time that they trace genealogy, the genealogy always ended up at God. Do you realize that? God created Adam and Eve, and every one of us somehow attached to that bloodline. So that means that every one of us, if you go back far enough, we're all related. That means we're all part of the same family. That means we all have the same father. That means every one of us, whether we like it or not, we are connected. We are family. We're responsible for one another. And when you know that you're family, you do what you got to do. Family takes care of family. The problem is we just don't view the world as our family. I have three almost grown sons, 24, 19, and 16. And I can tell you, any of you that have had children that age know that my children have had plenty of struggles through that. I mean, you know, it's just the ups and downs of faith, the ups and downs of life, the ups and downs, and, and they're going through these. And I can tell you this, any of my sons, when they've ever struggled with their faith, nobody has to remind me to pray for them. How many of you parents can say, yep, that's true? I mean, every night before I go to bed, I'm saying, God, help my sons to know you better. Help my sons to understand whenever they're struggling, when I wake up in the morning, the first thought I have is to pray for my sons. Sometimes in the middle of the night, it just wakes me up, riding down the car. There is a constant remembrance. Why? Because they're my flesh and blood. Because I love them. I'm connected to them. Can you imagine how different the world would be if we truly viewed the people of this city as family? Can you imagine how different the world would be if we viewed the people of every nation as our family, our responsibility, people to be engaged with? One of our great Indian theologians, he made this statement. It's one of my new favorite statements. He said this, the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. So what does that mean? That means me and my real brother, we are connected by, by the water of the womb. I'm connected with my mother. I'm connected with my father because of, because of this physical connection we have. I'm responsible to them because of that. They're responsible to me because of that. But you and I are connected by even more than that. We are connected by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
And the blood of the covenant means I have more responsibility to you than I even do to my own family because you're my family too. If you look at the early church, one of the greatest impacts of the outpouring of the Spirit, it wasn't just that they spoke in other tongues. That was the initial physical evidence. But if you look at Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, the ongoing evidence of the Spirit working in their hearts was this. There was not one needy person among them. Because anyone who had need, they would sell what they have. They would give it. They took care. They viewed each other as family. Now, when I got saved, I got saved in an old Southern Pentecostal church where anybody that was at least two days older than you was brother. You know, everybody's brother and sister. It's hard for me today to not say Brother Mark just because he's so much older than I am, and I just want to call him Brother Mark. It's hard for me to just call him by his first name. And we want to use brother and sister, and for us, brother and sister is an honorific that we use. It's like saying, yes, sir, mister, or ma'am. It's, a, it's an honorific. But for the early church, brother and sister wasn't an honorific title they used. Brother and sister was a denotion of relationship, that you're now my brother. And whatever I do for my brother, now I've got to do it for you. You're my sister now. Whatever I do for my sister... That's what I've got to do for you now. When I was living in Laos, I had this neighbor who was really sick. He was an old man, and he's very poor, and I knew he couldn't go to the hospital. So one day I was taking my son to the hospital, so I just took him along with me. and said, hey, come with me to the hospital, and, and my son's got to get checked up. Why don't you come, and you can get checked up too. So he goes to the hospital. They run a lot of tests on him. The next day they ask me to bring him back, and I come back the next day, walk in and sit with the doctor, and the doctor looks at all these reports and looks up at us and, and looks at me and said, just shook his head and said, you just got to take him home and let him die. There's nothing I can do. And I was just like shocked. I mean, this is my neighbor. This is somebody who's, who I've been, he's helped me in the village. He's one of the leaders in the local Buddhist monastery. And, and since I had moved into that little village, he had been so helpful to me. He was always there for me. And I said, what do you mean? Take him home and let him die. He said, well, He's uh, in the early stages of kidney failure. He said, we have no facilities at our hospital to treat him. Closest hospital from here that could treat him is over 10 hours away in Thailand. That's a 10-hour drive away. To get there, you got to have a passport. He doesn't even have a passport. This man is poor. He has no money. He has no car. He has no facilities. There's absolutely no reason for me to give him false hope. It's better for him to go and be with his family in his last months and to die in peace. And I looked at him and I said, how much money are we talking about here? Because uh, I, I just can't let him die. And he gave me a figure that was the starting point was going to be, you know, to get started, the figure came out to be about $20,000. And I don't have $20,000. So, uh, so I put him in the car and we go back home. And when we get home, I tell him, I said, Mr. Ort, you know that I am a follower of Jesus. And I said, and I believe Jesus heals. And I want you to know from this day forward, I'm going to be praying for you. Every night before I go to bed, I'm going to be praying for you that God is going to heal you. And right there I prayed for him, and, and he goes into his house, and, and I live just, you know, about 50 feet from his house, and I walk over into my house, and, and I go to bed. And I'm getting ready to go to sleep that night. I'm almost asleep, and I remember, oh, I told Mr. Ord I was going to pray for him. I got to pray for him tonight. And so, so I slipped on the side of the bed, and I kneel down, and I just start to say a little prayer. God, would you please heal my friend? And as soon as I said it, I felt the Spirit speak to me. Just still small voice. What would you do if that was your father? 
what would you do? And I started, I just stopped praying, and I started thinking. I think through scenarios, and I said, well, I guess if it was my father, I'd do whatever I had to do. I'd, I'd, uh, I'd max my credit cards out. I'd mortgage the house if I had a house. I'd sell the car if I had a car. I'd, I'd do whatever I had to do, but even if there was a fractional chance, a 1% chance my father would live, I couldn't live with myself if I just let him die. Can somebody say, yeah, amen, I I couldn't do that. I couldn't just let somebody I love die. So I came to the conclusion, I I guess I'd do whatever I had to do. And then I felt the Spirit speak to me and said, whatever you would do for your father, do it for him. So I go to bed that night. Next morning, I get up first thing in the morning. I go to his house, and I said, Mr. Oda, I said, I'm sorry, I I, I didn't treat you right. I said, since I've come to this village, you've, you've been there for me. And I want to be there for you. I, I feel like your family, and I've got to treat you like I would treat my father. And so I want you to know that uh, we're, we're going to do this together. I'm, I'm going to help you any way I can. So the next day we get in the car, we drive to Thailand, and this starts the next two years of back and forth almost every month to Thailand of maxing out credit cards, of, uh, of taking loans and uh, borrowing money from here and there. And, uh, and uh, to tell you, that was almost 10 years ago, and he's still alive today. He's still alive. But even bigger than that, a couple of years after that, I'm getting ready to leave Laos. And uh, that morning, I'm getting into my truck to leave. And one of the neighbor children came to me and said, Mr. Old wants to see you before you leave. And so, so I walk over to his house and I walk in. And uh, he looks at me and he's got tears in his eyes. And he said, I'm so, so sad you got to leave. He said, uh, you're like family. He said, you're like my son. He said, I want you to know that uh, your family and your God is my God. Would you pray with me? I want to follow your God. I want to follow Jesus. And his wife walks in and says, you're also my son, and you're my family, and I also want to follow. And he and his wife made the decision to follow Jesus that day, and they are pillars of the church today. They have led dozens of people to faith, and they are discipling people simply because of a small idea to treat the world like family. To treat the world like family. You know, in the cesspool of social media, it can wreck our compassion because we begin to see in this cesspool people that are enemies and not people that are family. Not people that are family. You see, if my son were, became a serial killer, if he became the most vile of people, he'd still be my son. I would hate everything he ever did, but the compassion for him would be so great, I'd be the first to visit him every time the jail cell was open because he's still my son, and I love him. And yet somehow the world has become our enemy. Jesus said, I did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through me would have life. And what fasting does is when we begin to fast, when we begin to enter in, when we begin to feel the brokenness, that it begins to transform us, that God changes our heart to begin to view the world as family. 
You see, the Spirit of God is often talked about like oil, that when we begin to pray and fast and God pours out His Spirit on us and our hearts have become hardened. And it's like when you put oil on hard leather, what does it do? It starts to soften it up and it begins pliable again. It begins usable again. And our hearts that can get so hard with bitterness in the world today that we can view the pain around us and the pain can harden our hearts. But when the Spirit of God is poured out on us, it begins to loosen us up and change us so that we can be a people of empathy for the world. Now, I've heard people say, you can't live like that. You can't be responsible for everybody. You know where you start? Be responsible for somebody. You can't start by meeting the needs of all of the broken. Start with meeting the needs of somebody that's broken. You know, my wife just has this incredible compassion meter. You know, just she just has an antenna. She just, like, she just sees needs all around us. When the lockdown started and, uh, and uh, you, know, that's, you know, back in March, the first thing my wife said to me as soon as the lockdown started, said, you know, our neighbors right down the street, they're in their 80s. They are very high risk, and they're, they're very afraid. They have a daughter who's in her 40s who's a shut-in, and she can't get out of the house. We need to make sure that they're fed. I said, well, I didn't think about that. She said, I said, okay, we'll do it. And so from that day, she started cooking that every time we cooked, she cooked for three extra people. And then we'd take it down to them and set it on their porch. They, they were afraid to even come out. And we just started doing this. And, and we've been doing that for four months now of just taking food to our neighbor, just making sure. On days that we were fasting, we still cook food. We take the food we would have eaten. We cook it and we take it down to him. Why? Because of, because of a realization that I am my brother's keeper. I am my sister's keeper. I, I am responsible for the people around me. I have to do something about it. But unless God softens my heart, I don't feel that responsibility. But let me tell you, when we begin to fast and when we begin to pray, God starts to change our hearts and stuff starts to happen. Look at Isaiah 58 verse 8. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. And if you spin yourself in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in darkness. God desires to use us to bring light into the darkness all around us. Our country today is being covered in darkness. There is so much sin abounding. There is so much darkness around us. And God desires to bring hope and life and light into this situation. How does he does it? When we, the people of God, enter into the brokenness, the humility, the pain, so that he can pour his spirit out on us and use us to bring hope and healing to others. That's how God does it. That's how he works. And then Isaiah 58 leads us into Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And just so you don't think this is just in Isaiah, you will remember in Luke chapter 4, Jesus began his ministry this way. It said the Spirit of the Lord drove him into the wilderness. 
And for 40 days, Jesus was in the wilderness, and he fasted, and he prayed, and he was hungry. And then after 40 days, when he came out of the wilderness, verse 12 tells us, he came out in the power of the Spirit. That Jesus himself entered in to our brokenness and our pain, and the Father then poured out his Spirit on him. Now, I want you to realize this. Jesus could have just come. Remember, he was the Word. And words don't need visual. Jesus could have just come as a booming voice from heaven, declaring God's voice to us, declaring God's Word to us. But Jesus wasn't just the Word. Jesus was the Word incarnate. That means that he was the Word lived out in flesh and blood. And Jesus Christ is able to intercede for us today. He is able to minister to us today because when we say to him, man, I am tired, Jesus can say, I know how you feel. When we're hungry and thirsty, Jesus understands our pain. When we are betrayed and let down, Jesus can say, yes, I know what it is to be betrayed. I know what it is to love people and help people and have them turn on you. I know what it is to be a refugee as a child. He had to go off into Egypt and, and live as a refugee. I know what it is to be hunted down that Jesus Christ entered into our infirmity and our pain so that he could be the great high priest touched with the feelings of our infirmity so he could minister to us in times of need. And that's what Jesus has called us to. And that's what we do when we enter into fasting. We enter into the brokenness and into the pain so that God can soften our hearts, that our compassion begins to flow. And compassion is an action. It is not an emotion. Throughout the Bible, it always says of Jesus, he was moved with compassion. That real compassion always moves us to action. And there is action needed in our day-to-day. -day. There are people that are broken and hurting all around us today. There are three billion people who've never heard the gospel today. It is a time for fasting, for brokenness, calling on the name of the Lord, that God would pour out his spirit on us to use us and propel us to go out and to change our world. You know, when we get into these kind of moments, one of the first reactions is we crave normalcy. How many of you want to get things to get back to normal? I mean, back when we could go and eat where we want to eat and do what we want to do, and, and we don't have to put on masks, and, and school is not this, like, stressful thing of how are we going to do school this year? Or, uh, you know, what's, I mean, this is, these are stressful moments. And in time of stress, our human nature is we, we strive for, we want that sense of consistency, of tradition, of routine. We want those things desperately. But I want to remind you today that normal wasn't nearly as good as you remember. I want to remind you today that normal wasn't the nostalgic thing that you were looking at and say, oh man, back were things that were normal and we could just go to church. Oh man, that was so great when things are normal. Let me remind you, during normal times, the majority of people in your county and your city are not worshiping God today. That was normal. 
During normal times, many of you have brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, mothers and fathers who are not serving Jesus today, and they are lost. That's what normal times look like. During normal times, three billion people around the world were yet to be engaged with the gospel of Jesus Christ. During normal times, one billion people in India alone have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't want to go back to normal because normal wasn't changing our world. Instead of going back to normal, I want to move into supernatural again. I want to stop having to go to graveyards to remember great things God used to do. I want to enter into a moment where I can say, God, God, during this time, this moment, where we don't know where to turn, we don't know what to do, God, we're going to turn to you, and we're going to believe you to do great and mighty things that we never imagined. You know, when all this started, we were all in survival mode. How do I survive? How do I, how do I move forward? And then we got into maintenance mode. Well, now we figured out how to live in this moment. But I want to tell you, we cannot afford to survive. We cannot afford just to maintain. We have got to expand. We have got to grow. We have got to go forward. We cannot afford to take a year off. I want to promise you the enemy is not going to take a year off. There are still going to be homes that are breaking apart throughout this year. There are going to be families that are being destroyed this year. There are lives that are being, being wiped out this year. We cannot take a year off. During this moment, I want to encourage you, seek the Lord with all your heart. As our community has sought the Lord, man, times are difficult in India, but the work is still growing. People are coming to faith every year. We have got five new cities that we've identified that we're going to start work in this year. I don't know how. I don't know, know, know all the details. I just know we're doing it because God has called us all to look forward, to look out, to expand during this moment. But we're not going to do it unless God changes our heart until the empathy of God is so deeply ingrained in our hearts that when I see a video on the internet, it's not just something I can look at and say, oh, that's kind of bad, and move away. But what if that was my brother? What if that was my sister? What if that pain was my pain? When we enter in and fasting to that pain, God begins to change our heart. And when God changes our heart, it changes the way we pray. It changes the way we live. He pours out on his spirit on us and empowers us to do what we couldn't do unless he shows up. And I believe this is the year of the favor of the Lord. And the year of the favor of the Lord begins with the people of God seeking the Lord like never before. And when we seek the Lord, he hears our voice he pours out his spirit, and he will empower us to minister to the broken, to set the oppressed free, to break the yoke of bondage. It will happen if we'll seek his face. Please don't be satisfied with normal. Please don't be satisfied with a longing just to go back to the way things were. Seek the Lord. Let us believe that in the scope of history, maybe 10 years from now, a hundred years from now, we're going to be able to look back at the year 2020 and say, wow, that was the year my son started to follow Jesus again. 
That was the year our neighbors started to worship the Lord with us. That was the year our city that something started to happen and unity started in our city again. That was the year that people who never heard the gospel started hearing the gospel for the first time. It can happen if we will seek his face during these times.